everyone. Welcome to the Austin and Steve Experiment. I'm your host, Steve Sales. Austin is still unavailable at the moment, so it's just going to be me for now. I wanted to do this episode on Monday, but it's pretty late. Obviously, um, I've had some school stuff I had to get done with holidays and everything, so my schedule's been a little busy, so I can't promise that I'm really ever going to be able to get these out consistently, but I'm going to do them when I can. And I think the topics I wanted to talk about are still relevant, so I'm still going to talk about that today. I have some football and basketball stuff today, so we'll get right back to that in a second. Okay, so I'm going to start with the NBA stuff. I'm going to talk about the Sixers and the Wizards, and I'm going to start with the, the Jimmy Butler trade because obviously this has been super late. I was in Tampa when the trade went down, I was down there for a wedding, so I wasn't able to talk about it, and I couldn't really find any time to make a mini segment and talk about it, and as a Sixers fan, I think that I should share my thoughts on the trade, and at first, I really hated the trade, um, you hear all the, re- the reports about what he did to Wiggins and Towns and everything, and I just was not very comfortable with bringing him into the Sixers locker room, and... I really, I thought this was just like the dumbest thing they could have done, but as I watched him play and the more I thought about it, I'm, I like this trade actually a lot bit, a lot more than I did originally because they, they had to make, they had to make a move like this because clearly they weren't getting any free agent signings, major free agent signings. I mean, they didn't get a meeting with Paul George. They got a meeting with Rich Paul and I doubt they're going to get anything with KD or Clay or anybody else that might be of significance to them and so I think this is how you get guys like that you get you make a trade and it was a pretty good deal I think you got Robert Covington and Dario Saric are very solid players but in the end they're just role players and if all you have to give up for a player of Jimmy Butler's caliber is two role players and a pick and Jared Bayless you have to make that move every single time and after watching him, the fit is a lot cleaner than I expected it to be. He's not dominating the ball, and he's shooting fine. Like it's The shooting I thought was going to be a little bit of an issue, but it really hasn't been. And on defense, he's been excellent. Obviously, Covington was a first-team all-defensive player last year, but Butler is more than making up for that in the, d- the defense department. You can watch him. I think I've watched every game that Jimmy's played in the Sixers so far, and he really is, uh, he's an incredibly intelligent defender. He moves around all over the place. He kind of improvises and helps with some double teams. And he never does it, though, to the detriment of the team defense. He always does it so he can still get back to his man. And obviously, he's just like a very good individual defender in and of itself. And he's clutch. I mean, they've proven that they give up a lot of lead. They get big leads, and then they give them up all the time. They just lost the Cavs last night. It, a little ridiculous, but... They needed a guy like Jimmy, I think, who can calm everybody down and take the ball and just do what needs to be done. I mean, the Charlotte winner was awesome, and I think we're going to see a lot more of those in the near future. So, and it also, it's interesting because it also puts them into a win-now mode. So, I mean, you're going to play Markel Fultz less regardless of whatever's going on. Side note, by the way, I am not talking about Markel Fultz until he is either traded or starts playing reasonably well just because I'm sick of all the rumors that go on with his trainer and his mom and everything. It's, 
exhausting to keep track of, and I'm just not going to waste any time on that because I don't think anybody really cares at this point anymore. So back to the Jimmy Butler stuff. It puts them in a win-now mode where you need to get guys who are going to help you win. And they have they could, in theory, make enough cap space to add a fourth star, but I don't know if they should. Just because they, in order to get that cap space to sign that fourth guy, they would have to renounce J.J. Redick and um, Mike Muscala and all of their free agents next year. They wouldn't be able to get any of them if they wanted to have the cap space. And frankly, I think it just it guts your team in a way that makes it unattractive simply because they're not the Warriors who all fit together so seamlessly, so seamlessly that they don't need a bench. But I think the Sixers will need depth particularly on the wings if they really want to succeed so i would rather keep the 20 or so million in cap space that they have and retain guys like reddick and try and find another wing or shooter of some sort to keep them competitive so all in all i think it was a move they had to make and i liked what i've seen so far and i think it'll work out all right so i'm going to take a quick break and then we'll head over to the washington wizards so, this, generally, Sixers fans are feeling pretty good right now. Other than the Fultz stuff, things are looking up. They're winning games. Jimmy Butler's there. He's trying to fit in with his team. Things are good in Philly right now. Things are not good in Washington with the Wizards. They continue to be the NFL's most fun disaster to watch because every year they say, hey, we're going to get it together, we're going to get along, and we're going to win some games, and every year it falls apart in spectacular fashion. And... It just keeps happening earlier and earlier in the year, and we are two months into the season, and it is already falling apart. Um, so, as many people have reported, the Wizards and Ernie Grunfeld are willing to listen to any trade offers for anybody on the team, and including John Wall and Bradley Beal, their two core players. And I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but this is my view of the situation. The... Four best players on their team, let's let's say John Wall, Bradley Beal, Kelly Oubre, and Otto Porter. I think three of those players are not one of one of them is definitely untradeable, and the other two should not be traded for. And the last one, the Wizards should be keeping. They shouldn't even be trying to trade. So it's a very interesting situation they have going on there because I really don't think. If you trade any of those guys, it's it's going to be a disaster. So I'm going to break it down by player and go through why I, th I think that it's going to be really difficult to trade any of them and why most of them should not get traded. So I'm going to start with Kelly Oubre. And it's simply my biggest thing is his shooting has fallen off of a cliff. He had a hot start last year and he cooled off by the end of this year. And now he's, he's just a hor horrible shooter. I think he's under 30% and... I don't know why you would willingly trade for a guy like that if he can't shoot. I'm I know he's still young and he has upside, but the the shooting is just abysmal. And if you're you're not going to trade for him if you're developing players right now on a tanking team, and if you're a win now team, you're not going to want him either. Um, and from what it sounds like, he's one of the problems in the locker room that causes all of the turning on each other and all the the subtweeting and everything. So. If I were a general manager, which I'm not for a very good reason, I would not trade for Kelly Oubre Jr., but that's just me. Next up, Otto Porter. 
Otto Porter has a decent fit on most teams. He can shoot. He can play defense. He can do a lot of different things pretty well. But something just hasn't something hasn't clicked this year with him. Like he's not. Do, he hasn't like improved a ton. And it also sounds like that when Wall and Beal and Austin Rivers and all these guys are talking in their interviews, it sounds like they're talking about him in regards to the lack of effort and all of that stuff that people see all the time. So that's red flag number one. But really, the the biggest thing it, it just comes down to is he is ridiculously overpaid. The the Nets tried to sign him to a max deal, and the Wizards matched it for some reason, and it just killed their cap. I think he's making over tw- he's making over twenty million. I think it's somewhere around twenty five million, and you just you cannot afford to play to pay a role player that much. He's their third option, and he's making almost thirty million dollars, which from a team building perspective, you. You cannot do that. You cannot do it. So if you're a team like the Pelicans, who are desperate to get anything around Anthony Davis, you can't you can't trade for Otto Porter. Even if he has a better fit on your team and can help you guys win, you have no space. So you get Otto Porter, and that's great, but then you can't sign anybody else, and I he might push you over the tax, which they don't want to do. And I, I don't know for sure if he would push them over or not, but really hard to imagine somebody wanting to get a number three or four option at best for that kind of money. And so the contract that I think is just completely untradeable is John Walls. I I feel comfortable saying Bradley Beal is their best player. John Wall does not try on defense. He kind of gums up the offense a little bit. I mean, we've seen they can have moments where they look better without him than they do with him. His shooting's a little suspect. You don't. He's probably not going to age very well. Like Westbrook, he relies a lot on his athleticism, and the contract that he signed is just absurd. He's going to make forty something million dollars when he's thirty-two, and he might not even be a plus player at that point. So I don't know why anyone would really want to trade for him and give up significant assets. The Wizards might have to treat this like a salary dump almost, just because it's going to be such a bad contract. I've heard, I, I read, I was listening to a podcast of Zach Lowe and Tom Haverstrow, and I've heard other stuff. They've talked about how the Pelicans might want to trade for him just so they can prove to Anthony Davis that they want to surround him with talent. But there has to be another way to do that. Because if you get John Wall and you have Anthony Davis, you will have no room to sign anybody because almost like three quarters of your cap is tied up in two players. And if Anthony Davis leaves, then you're stuck with John Wall and his $45 million, which nobody wants. You're not going to want to be the guy stuck with John Wall alone on his team with that kind of contract. You just can't do it. So I I just don't see how anybody would trade for John Wall and see it as a positive for the team that gets him. It really just does not make a ton of sense to me. And if someone's willing to convince me otherwise, then I'm, I'm open to it. But I just don't understand from a financial perspective why you would pay John Wall $45 million when he's 32. That just does not seem right to me at all. And the one player that they can get legitimate trade value for is Bradley Beal, who his defense hasn't been great this year, but the potential is there. He can play decent defense. He's a great offensive player and don't really have anything to say about his offense. It speaks for itself. But if you want to get you can get a pretty good deal for him, but that doesn't change the fact that you're still stuck with John Wall and Otto Porter. So I would rather almost just tough it out with, like, keep Bradley Beal because he's your 
your best player and will continue to be your best player. He's only 25, I think. There's still a lot of time left with him. So sure, you can get a lot for him, but at the same time, you're going to be left with very little to deal to work with after you get rid of him. So, I mean, I'm sure there are going to be some teams that are going to offer some pretty good deals for Milwaukee and um, Philly. I don't really like the Philly idea, though, just because, like I said earlier, they can, they'd have to give up basically everything to financially afford him and to give up something to trade for him. They'd basically have to gut their entire bench. I'm assuming you'd give up something of Zaire, Zaire Smith and the Miami pick and a few other bits and pieces, and I just don't think that's worth doing for a fourth all-star when you can take that money instead and get a less expensive player like a, a Tobias Harris or somebody like that. So the Wizards are kind of a disaster, and even though they're willing to trade all of these guys, I still don't really think anything good is going to come of it. So, all right, we're going to take another quick break, and then I'm going to move on to the NFL stuff. Okay, so now we're going on to the NFL. I'm going to talk about one of the Thanksgiving games a little bit later, just because it has something to do with this segment I want to do. But we're going to start, we're going to talk about the Chiefs-Rams game, which was a lot of fun. I didn't get to watch all of it. I watched a little bit of it with my dad, and I told my dad as I was going to bed, I said, hey, this game's going to end, and it's going to be 52-51 Rams. And I woke up in the morning, and it ended up being 54-51 Rams. So I was pretty pleased with myself because of that. So humble brag, sorry. Um, obviously, it was it was so much fun to watch. I mean, it was the two... Two of the best offenses in the league. I don't know where you would want to rank the Saints among those guys. But obviously it was a lot of fun. And was not a ton of defense played other than those defensive touchdowns. Um, but I do want to... I have a concern about the Chiefs. And I think this is like the... I think this is the first hot take I've ever had on this podcast. It was objectively kind of controversial and outrageous. And I'm pretty sure I'm wrong on this one. But I, I just wanted to say it and get it out there just to see what other people thought about it. The The Chiefs' biggest problem is their offense is too explosive, if that makes any sense in, at all. And I think it goes hand-in-hand hand with the idea that Andy Reid just does not know how to coach a team in, at the end of a game. His clock management is just abysmal. If you look at it, their two losses this year are to the Patriots and to the Rams, two of the best teams in the league, two of the best offenses in the league. And if you look at the stats, the Rams or the, the Chiefs average 44.5 points per game in those two losses, which is more than their regular average. I don't, I don't remember what their regular average of points is off the top of my head, but it's not 44.5. And if you look at the Patriots game, they were finally starting to heat up in the second half, right? And the, they get it to the Patriots are up 33-30. Or no. Yeah, the, so the Patriots get up, and then the Chiefs score the big Tyreek Hill touchdown with, I think, four. it was three or four minutes left, the big 75-yard touchdown. They score right away. So Tom Brady gets the ball back, and Tom Brady just drains out the clock until they march all the way down the field, and they kick a field goal to win the game. And if you look at what they did in the Rams game, driving down the field, driving down the field, and then the... They go and hit the the big play to to ugh, Tyreek Hill again. I think it was another 70-something yard touchdown to Tyreek Hill. And then the Rams took the ball, marched down the field again, a, lot, a little bit slower. 
and they scored again. And they gave enough. They gave the Chiefs enough time to get the ball back. But by then, I think Mahomes' arm got hit, and then it it looked shot or something that he really underthrew that last throw. So they had a chance to win the game again, but they still they gave the Rams too much time to score. And it's been a ton of fun to watch them. Obviously, they play really really fast and they get those big plays, and it's fun to watch. But when you're only looking for big plays, you're going to score too quickly at the end of these games sometimes, and you're going to give the really good offenses those times to score, and that's going to matter in these AFC Championship game and the Super Bowl because in the AFC Championship game, they're going to be playing one of the Patriots, Steelers, and Chargers, and those offenses, if you give them enough time, they will drain the clock and prevent you from scoring. And if you go in the Super Bowl, you're going to play a great offense in the Saints or the Rams, and they can do the exact same thing, and the Rams have already beaten them. So, I don't know. Like they, they, have, they have a running back that can slow this offense down. That's what the Rams do with Todd Gurley. They don't need to go super fast because Todd Gurley is such an efficient runner that it doesn't matter. And they have Kareem Hunt. It's not like they can't do it. It's just that they don't because Andy Reid doesn't know how to manage a clock. And I think it's something to look for going forward, especially in these playoff games, because it could really cost them. This defense is not good enough to stop anybody. Like the the Chiefs need to the Chiefs need to slow it down at the end of these games, or it's going to cost them. So something to look forward to. Another quick break, and then we're going to go to the NFC East and how that's all shaking out. Okay, so for my last bit today, I wanted to talk about the NFC East just because it is back to being really bad, but everyone still watches their games, and it's it's very interesting how the division has gone throughout the year, so I'm going to break down all of these teams and see who can actually do something at, towards the end of the season and make playoffs. And I'm going to start from the bottom and go up to the top. So start with the Giants. Obviously, I, I said they were going to be really bad in the beginning of the year, and they're really bad again. It's no surprise. Their offensive line has been incredibly inconsistent, which I don't know why people didn't expect that because they replaced, they got rid of um, Eric Flowers. Great. They finally, or he was playing until they released him. In the beginning of the year, they lost um, Weston Richburg and Justin Pugh. They lost both of them, and they replaced them with Nate Solder, who is a very average tackle. He's a good run blocker. He's an okay pass protector. And he's not going to put you over the top. And instead, they go and make him the highest paid tackle ever for some weird reason. And you replace another spot in line with Eric Flowers, who has proven himself to be completely inept, at least for the Giants. And obviously, he's gone. But in the beginning of the season, he was there and was terrible, as they should have seen. So they got the um, Hernandez kid, who has been pretty good, but their offensive line net, their net change on their offensive line really didn't change all that much. So they were still bad, and I don't know how much Eli has left in the tank. I'm not a big Eli fan, but I'm willing to acknowledge that he can have moments, he can have games where he's all right, as long as he gets protected and. As we saw last week when they played the Buccaneers, he was protected a little bit, and he had a pretty solid game. Now, granted, it was against the Buccaneers' defense, so he should have done well, but when he's protected, he can still make a few throws with all of the weapons that they've given him. But obviously their defense still isn't that great. Eli's 
Eli, and I don't expect them to do anything over this last stretch. They're still going to be bad and get a top five pick. Next up is the Eagles. I have been reveling in the Eagles' lack of success this season, but I don't want to spend too much time making it out like I'm a bitter Patriots fan or anything. So we're just going to look at them objectively. Um, their offense has been all right. It, it's been fine. Um, Carson Wentz has been pretty good. The, the run game really kind of stalled for a while until they put Josh Adams in last week, and he's been pretty good um, so far. But the offensive line is a lot more banged up than last year. I think Jason Peters is still kind of banged up, and Lane Johnson has been out the last few games, I believe. So they're not quite as stout as they once were. But their biggest problem is just the, the defense and the injuries they've suffered on the defense. Their secondary, it wasn't great last year. I mean, we saw in the Super Bowl, Brady threw 500 yards and torched them. But even saying that, when you have your top five corners are all going to miss a game like they are this next weekend, you, you cannot win games that way in today's offense-driven NFL when your top five corners are hurt. So I don't know what else can be expected because they're just going to hemorrhage points regardless of everything else on that roster. And their schedule, I, they still have to play the Rams, and the, they just got destroyed by the Saints. And they have to play the Cowboys one more time. And we'll get to the Cowboys in a minute, but I think the Cowboys are going to run all over them again like they did last time, and it won't be close. So I think the Eagles will be able to get a couple wins here and there, but to all of the people I've seen on message boards that say, oh, we can win the division at 9-7, and seven, you're not going to get to 9-7 and seven because you're going to give up like 30-something points a game these last few weeks of the season. So very disappointing follow-up season on the Super Bowl for the Eagles does not look like they're having so much fun. I'm sorry, but that needed to be said. Um, next up is the Redskins, who were a really weird team even before the Alex Smith injury because they had the one game against the Texans where Alex Smith got hurt, where there was a lead change. So that was already really bizarre. And they played in such a way that they're just a really bizarrely built team because they have a fantastic front four. They've got Jonathan Allen and Deron Payne, and they've got all this all the talent in the world in the, their front seven. So their run defense has been awesome. And their run game has been really good. Adrian Peterson has looked significantly better than I could have ever anticipated him being there. I thought he was done, and he's been a really nice surprise this year to watch him succeed. Um, so they were really good at running the ball and stopping the run. Their pass defense, uh, was it was okay. I mean, Josh Norman really hasn't been worth the contract that they gave him. And they traded for Clinton Dix, and he's been kind of quiet this year so far for them. Um, but it, it's done enough. And their pass game was really, it was, it was nothing spectacular. Alex Smith was fine. He wasn't great. So they were, it was a weird team, and, the way, and their identity was weird too. But now without Alex Smith, and when you're starting Colt McCoy, I mean, we saw this in the, the Thanksgiving game, is if they don't respect your passing game at all, they're just going to load up on the box and they're going to stop your run. And when your offense becomes completely dysfunctional like that, it's you, just, you cannot win games when you're a one-dimensional offense that can get stopped like that. So it's going to be a real struggle for them, I think, over the last few weeks. And the beginning of the season next year is going to be in trouble too unless they decide to find a better stopgap for when Alex Smith comes back than Colt McCoy. All right, so we're done with the Redskins, and now we're going to go to the Cowboys. They've been pretty good the last few weeks. I think that um, 
Dak's been a lot better. The line's been healthier. So Zeke's been running all over the place, and their defense has been solid all year long. And the Amari Cooper trade, while they gave up way too much for him, he's still making a positive impact on their offense and giving Dak a target that he can go to and comfortably say, I can throw you a contested pass and you will catch it. And he's really fast, too. I mean, we saw those two touchdowns in the Thanksgiving game. He's incredibly fast. Um, and I, I think the division is theirs. They're, they're playing at a level right now with the roster balance that no other team in the division has. And their schedule is manageable. They play the Saints next Thursday. And I'm not going to come out here and tell you that the, Saint, the Cowboys are going to beat the Saints because that's just a little ridiculous to avidly think that. But their schedule is manageable. They've got the Eagles. I think they play the um, – no, they lost the Redskins already. They play the Giants again. And they play a few other games that are pretty winnable. They could win four or five of these next few games and win the division at 9-7, and 10-6. and six. But while I think they're going to win the division, I don't think this is what you want if you're a Cowboys fan. Because if they get to the playoffs, then, Jason, or then um, Jerry Jones is going to say, all right, well, we're going to keep Jason Garrett. And I just don't think that's something Cowboys fans want at this point. I mean, we've seen he's really just not, does not know how to run a modern team all that well, and I think you'd be best better suited trying to get a guy like Lincoln Riley or someone who can help Dak get to the next level consistently. Obviously, he's been great for the last few weeks, but I think there's another another level that they can reach with Zeke and Amari Cooper with a more modern head coach. So, I do think, though, that the Cowboys are in line for this division. Now, granted, they're probably aiming for nothing more than a first, second round playoff exit at this point. It's not like they're just because they're better than everyone else in the NFC East doesn't mean that they're a, a super team by any stretch of the imagination. But so that's how I see the division playing out. I think it's probably going to be the Eagles and Redskins might be able to flip at one point just because the Redskins aren't going to be a very good team without Alex Smith, and the Eagles might be able to pull out a few shootouts here or there because Carson Wentz has been playing so well. But so it's it's going to be Cowboys and then Eagles, Redskins, and then another tier below that, and it's going to be the Giants, I think. So that's my breakdown of the NFC East. And that's all we have for this episode of the Austin and Steve Experiment. I can't promise when the next time I'm going to put another episode out is. Um, the swim season is starting to kick up next week, so I'm going to be busy with that. Um, holidays, obviously, are going to come up in the next few weeks. So I, I, in, an, in an ideal world, I'd put an episode out every week but I think I've proven that I'm just not going to be able to do that consistently. But I will try my best to put stuff out when I can, and I appreciate everybody for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.